This episode is being recorded out of Shop Talk Podcast Studios in Oak Park, Michigan. For more information, visit www.shoptalkpod.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Be Great With Your Money podcast, the podcast where we talk about everything about business, money, capitalism, and finance. My name is James D. Anderson at IMJD Anderson, and in this episode, we're going to troll all the financial statements and myths that they have out there. I'd rather be broke. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into it. First of all, welcome back. If you are the first per- first time listening here, hey, guys, we talk about money, personal finance, credit, debt, all those things that can help you go out there and be great with your money. And if you have been here before, welcome back. Let's go ahead and jump into it. And, of course, we start to show off with a financial statistic, and I'm going to drop one for you guys today. And I pulled this right from Money Magazine, very recent article, but it said many Americans are clearly not experts in managing their own finances. They end up broke month after month. So basically meaning they have more month than they have money. You guys hear me say that a lot. But the cycle of overspending does not is not exclusive to the poor. Even if their income is considerably well above the poverty line, they said a third of what they call well-to-do salaries or well-higher-income in- households, those that bring in over $75,000 or more, they're actually living paycheck to paycheck. Now, the funny thing is, is I referenced this statistic before, and it it was kind of around like $65,000. Well, now we're up to $75,000. So there's a bunch of different factors in there. But just to say that you actually make a decent salary, you have a decent income coming in in your household, does not necessarily mean that you're out there being great with your money and you're still struggling financially to get things done. So There are a lot of factors that go into it. Number one, you got the average credit card debt. Student loans are killing people. You know, most people have no savings at all. We already know that 50 plus percent of people, they don't even have $400 saved up for an emergency. And you got 76% of people that can't get to a thousand. That's just, it's it's rough out here for individuals. So we're going to kind of go through this episode today. We're going to kind of debunk some of the financial statements that most people hear. Okay. It's going to be kind of a troll episode. It's going to be a fun episode, but we're going to put some substance behind those things of why why people hear those common sayings of what you're supposed to do with your money. And ladies and gentlemen, I got some news for you. Unfortunately, a lot of them just isn't true. So I got a list of them. I got a long list. I reached out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I got a bunch of DMs, a bunch of inboxes of just kind of what people have said they've been told about money. And a lot of times these are statements and phrases that most people actually, actually, ladies and gentlemen, they actually believe and unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that most of them are just they're just they're just not lining up. So first ones first, they say if you save 10 percent for retirement, you will be set. So they said if you put 10 percent of your salary away, you set it and forget it. By the time you when it's time to retire, you're going to be all set. I know you guys heard it a lot. People put it out there. That's kind of a rule of thumb. But unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, it's 100 percent false. The reason why it's false is because your retirement goal is different from person to person to person. And just to say that I'm going to put 10 percent aside to save for retirement is not really a factual statement. 
Now, I do admit, if you are putting 10% aside, you're doing better than most, but what is your actual retirement goal? So you have to work backwards. You have to know what your end destination is and then kind of work that back and see how much you're going to be saving based upon in your retirement funds, what you're going to be putting it in, your general rated returns, all those different factors. There. So to just say a blanket statement that if you just save 10%, you're good to go is completely false. And I know even on most, like, like, you know, kind of the water, the, what they call it, the water cooler, you know, when people are at work talking, they say, oh, just put 10% aside, just put 10% aside, you're going to get the company match, you're going to be set, that's going to be great for you. It does not mean anything, okay? You have to look at what your end goal is, how long you're going to be putting into the retirement funds, and also how much money you actually want to receive when you retire. So, one suggestion I can say is you probably want to work out the numbers on paper, figure out what you're going to need to do, look at your general rate of returns on things that you want to invest in. But I tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, if you want a general rule of thumb, you need at least 20 times what you make in a year today if you want to retire. So if you make $40,000 a year, then guess what? You need to have $800,000 set aside for retirement. And then start breaking that out into bite-sized chunk of how long you're going to be to invest. Most individuals that I meet on a day-to-day basis with teaching people about finances and money, they need to be investing anywhere between $1,000 to $2,000 a month. And for most people, that's way more than 10% of their income. Here's another one for you guys. Buy a new car because you have less expenses. How many times have you heard people say you need to buy your car brand new so you don't have to put money into it to fix it? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's, I mean, that's so farther from the truth. Number one, a newer car is always going to be more expensive than what you can find in a comparable used vehicle, all right? That's just the honest-to-God truth. We all know that cars depreciate faster than anything out there in the marketplace. I mean, cars depreciate so fast. Just go buy yourself a new car at $30,000, drive it for a year, and try to take it back and trade it in or sell it. You're probably going to lose 15 20 30 not 40% on the new vehicle. But this idea that you're going to have less expenses, yeah, I get it. It, 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 if you as far as repairs, maybe because it is a newer product. However, typically with newer cars, you got more, you got a higher insurance rate. Um, you typically have um, more expenses with as far as your maintenance and things of that nature. Uh, oil change on a brand new car, if you have to use synthetic oil, it might run you 50, 60, 70 bucks versus if you got just a little beater and it cost you $20 at the local Vaveline. So you have to kind of start factoring in other things. Specifically, specifically here in, in the Metro Detroit area, insurance is, is high. It's nationwide known that we got some ridiculously high insurance. So I can guarantee if you got a brand new vehicle and you live in the Metro Detroit area, you're going to be paying substantially more than a comparable used vehicle. And then here's what we have to think about, ladies and gentlemen, is, yes, I know repairs, you know, with older cars can happen, but you kind of set some money aside during your savings and what you're supposed to do to be able to repair those cars later on down the line. And it's not to mention, okay, a lot of things that people miss, they think about brakes and, um, you know, engine components and things of that nature that wear and tear items on your vehicles. Let's not forget, accidents do happen. My dad brought a brand new F-150 and it was really windy and the wind and the pole just fell down on it and busted out the, the rear window. So he still had to get it repaired. That's not covered under warranty. That's just something that happened out there. You have people that get into accidents with brand new vehicles. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, the insurance most of the time is not going to cover everything. You have things that you have to actually replace and they're typically more expensive. All right. 
So this idea that buying a new car because you're going to have less expenses is only thinking about the wear and tear items. You're not thinking about the natural items that go on with your vehicle as you're using it, as you're as you're going through through the day to life day to day life basis with your vehicle. So. I'm just trolling out a little bit because I'm a big car guy. So I love cars. You guys probably know that. But I got to just keep that perfectly honest. Number three, a lot of people hit me with this one. They said your home is your largest asset. Guys, I'm just going to let me, let's just, let's just play devil's advocate really quickly. Let's say, for instance, it is your largest asset, okay? And let's say, for instance, that you got a $300,000 house and that's your largest asset. Well, by just by the numbers, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have enough for retirement. Remember, you need 20 times what you make in a year. So if you're a person that makes $40,000, you need $800,000, then you're going to need yourself $800,000 to a million-dollar home, just as far as net worth and numbers are concerned. However, you have to understand the difference between assets and liabilities. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Asset is going to put some money into your pocket. A liability is what's going to take is what's going to take money out of your pocket. And what I mean by asset and liabilities, you have to understand the difference between an appreciating asset and an income-producing asset. Those are two different things. An income-producing asset is the best thing that can counteract any of your liabilities because we know liabilities clearly take money out of our pocket. We want something that's going to produce income for us every single month to counteract those liabilities. So appreciating assets are cool, yes, but you have to sell the asset and then get the proceeds. You want to focus on income-producing assets. Now, this idea that your home is your largest asset is completely false because for most people, in most cases, the home that they live in does not put money in their pocket. Even if the home is absolutely paid off, guess what? You still got taxes, you still got insurance, you still got maintenance, you still got wear and tear, and you still got your time of taking care of that house. That's one of the biggest things that so many people forget is that it's your time. Time is money. We believe in that, but you still have to put time into your house itself, which ultimately is going to cost you because that's taken away from your earning potential. If you're out there building a business, working a job, investing, doing other things that you want to do, well, guess what? Time is still being a burden with having your home as your largest asset. Now, I know that might hit some people in the gut. They might not feel like that because your mom is your daddy's, your grand, your granddad's, your grandmama's, your aunties, your uncles. Everybody has told you that your home is your largest asset. Well, that's completely false. If you just look at the definition of an asset, it's, it's, it's not the case. Now, here's how it can turn into an asset. Let's say, for instance, you have your starter home. You go through, you do what you're supposed to do, you pay it off in a reasonable time, you don't pay a lot of interest on it, you get it paid off very quickly. Well, guess what? If you move out that starter home, you then rent it out, you now turn it into an income-producing asset. And as an income-producing asset, it can put money into your pocket because you rent it out, you don't have a mortgage on it, and you're kind of leveraging the equity of the house of, of, a, of a appreciating asset that you paid off that now you can turn it into there. So this idea that your home is the largest asset if that's your largest asset that you have in your life, I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, you're on the wrong track. All right. Here's another one. I got hit with a young lady for this one. And uh, we actually had a little bit of debate uh, in, the, in the DMs on Instagram about this. And I had to give her some information. But she said, keeping a credit card for emergency. So her mother and her grandmother always told her she needs to have a credit card for emergency. All right, ladies and gentlemen, guess what? A credit card is not an emergency. What you want to have is an emergency fund to set things aside. Now, yes, I know people are going to say, well, it's a lot easier to have the credit card, have it available, 
and have it ready to go. Okay, I get that. But here's the difference between an emergency and an inconvenience. An emergency, you simply just don't have the money. An inconvenience is that something happens, you have the money, and you have to go get it out the bank. See the difference there? So having a credit card just set aside for emergencies is a false narrative that's really been painted out there for credit card companies. You have to understand that you, when you're on your knuckles, when you have an emergency, you have to get it taken care of with no extra bells or whistles, no extra interest on top of that, because you're just going to continue to dig yourself a hole. Think about it like this. Let's say, for instance, you had a medical emergency and, you know, one of your children, they broke their arm. They had to go to the hospital. Unfortunately, you had to pay for the overnight stay out of pocket. Well, if you swiped out on a credit card, you, you probably didn't have the money in the first place. And since it's such an expensive emergency, you're probably going to be paying on that credit card for a long time. And then you're going to have interest and everything else going along. It. Yeah, you got the service taken care of. And yes, you take care of your children. Yes, you do what you have to do. However, if you had that just in cash, guess what? You can pay the cash, not pay any interest, don't incur any extra expenses there. And you don't have to mess around with your credit utilization, messing up your credit score because you're swiping large amounts that you don't have credit for. And you are all set. So this idea to have a credit card for an emergency, we got to get rid of that one off the top. Here's a common one that a lot of people say, a penny saved is a penny earned. Well, a penny saved is just a penny. Um, unless the penny turns into another penny, it's not necessarily a penny earned. And I understand what they're saying. They're saying if I save a penny today, it's a penny later on down the line I don't have to earn. What I like to tell people is you got a penny saved and you invest it, then that can turn into a penny earned. Because think about it. If you have money just sitting, unfortunately, losing value. So if you save a penny today, guess what? Tomorrow is actually worth less than a penny. And next year is worth less than a penny because you have this thing called inflation. So this idea of that you just can save and you're going to be all right is not the case. You have to save, take your money, and utilize it as cash flow to invest and make something else and have something else going on. That way it can produce you more income. Here's another one, ladies and gentlemen. And please, if you are of this age, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm not trying to talk bad about you. I'm just giving you guys the straightforward knowledge and what you need to do to be great with your money. But let's talk about this one right here. Retirement age is 65. All right. Take a deep breath on this one. So retirement, ladies and gentlemen, is not an age. Let me repeat myself. Retirement is not an age. Retirement is not an age. The reason why people attach 59 and a half, 62, 65, and 67 to retirement is because that's the first time that you can actually receive Social Security and other government aids, you know, that they have out there in social programs. All right. So let me troll this one a little bit. Let me ask you a question. You guys know who Paris Jackson is, Michael Jackson's children. You know who Paris Hilton is. You know, you know all these famous celebrities that's out there that have children that either is still living right now or great example, uh, Sam Walton. All of his children are on the Forbes list, the whole entire family, okay? Those people were actually born into retirement. See, retirement is just simply when you have enough assets or enough income or enough money set aside to where you can live and ultimately not have to go work or have to go physically earn more money. So let me give you an example. Sam Watson built a company called Walmart. Now, since he built a company called Walmart, 
then guess what? Now his children get to eat off that, get to eat off that that asset, that income producing asset as known as Walmart. So if you can be a child and if you can just basically be born and you know your family leave you a bit of money, trust funds, whatever it is, businesses, and then guess what? You are absolutely retired because that business, that asset is going to pay itself. So that can happen at any age. You can have a person retire at 20 years old. You can have a person retire at 30 years old. You can have a person retire at 40 years old. Think about like Mark Zuckerberg. He can retire today as a billionaire and never have to do anything he anything for money ever again. Ultimately, that is what retirement is. You have enough money set aside to where you don't have to work anymore. And this idea that you have to wait to retire or work to retire in 65, unfortunately, you know, it just doesn't, it's just a false narrative. Number one, if even if you live to 100, your, your best years are pretty much gone, okay? Yes, in retirement, you can have some glorious times, but I know a lot of people that would enjoy retirement if they was 40 years old versus if they were 60 years old. So I want us to start thinking about it on a larger scale. And the reason why we have to get rid of this false narrative is that it's going to propel you and motivate you to focus on generational wealth. And as you're focusing on generational wealth, you're going to be more focused on getting your kids to retire earlier and earlier and earlier as you're doing what you have to do in this present lifetime. Now, I know that's kind of, you know, on the soapbox kind of preachy, but I want you to hear me out. Retirement is not an age. It's just simply when you have enough money. Here's one I'm pretty sure that all your parents have told you before. Money doesn't grow on trees. You're absolutely right. Money does not physically go on trees. But the deeper meaning behind this statement, what a lot of people say, is that money is scarce. And that is totally false. Money is not scarce. You just have to go out and find who actually has your money. It's not a scarcity issue. You have people creating products and services and doing things throughout all their entire life in order to generate income and money. They're literally generating income and money from thin air, okay? You have, think about the applications we use on a daily basis. Think about Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those things that we use right now. They were just concepts and ideas that built very large businesses with what it is that we do today. So, yes, money does not physically grow on trees, but money is not scarce. And I'm one of the people that believe in abundance, and there's enough out here for everybody to prosper if you go out there and find out who's got your money, what's got your money, and focus on building up the things that generate actual income. All right, here's what I kind of touched on in the previous episode, but somebody hit me with it again, so I got to bring it here. And life insurance is something you get when you older. Yes, all right. The probability of you maybe getting sick or having getting hurt or, you know, passing away, God forbid, does ha- you got a higher probability later on down the line. I get it. But a life insurance is something that you want to actually get as young as you possibly can. Why is that? As I said before in the last episode, life insurance is what's going to be called income replacement. So if you're in your 20s, if you're in your 30s, then guess what? You got 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of income to be producing throughout your potential lifetime. Well, guess what? It's more critical that you get life insurance when you're younger. Not only is it cheaper, but if you start a new family, if you have young kids, if you're just getting started with your husband and wife, guess what? You actually are going to set them up to where they don't have to live a life of struggle. 
because if you're the primary breadwinner and something were to happen to you, you have life insurance that can use that money to then have income replacement in the absence of you absolutely being there. So life insurance is something that you want to get while you're young. It's cheaper. You can get a 30-year term, a 40-year term, whatever it is, and cover yourself for decades in the future. And it's wildly less expensive. Here's a good one. It's better to buy a home instead of renting. If you're just renting, you just waste the money. Now, how many times have you heard somebody tell you that it's better to buy a home instead of renting? This is back to kind of back to the original question, the original one we were talking about the house. Here's what we have to understand. It's all dependent on what your financial situation is. What a lot of people miss is they just look at the mortgage payment, okay? They, they compare the mortgage payment to rent. Well, here's the thing. They don't really compare a lot on the private mortgage insurance, the homeowner's insurance, the also the uh, wear and tear of the house, okay? They also don't um, go and count the landscaping, the cost for the landscaping, taxes. Um, I mean, there's just a world of things that go into having and buying a home, okay? I'll even say that it's just buying a home. You don't necessarily own it yet until you clear off all your debt on it, but you're buying a home. People can debate me on that one, but essentially if you owe payments, you're buying something because you're financing it. It's cool. No problem at all. Have no issue with that, but to say that people are just wasting money if they rent, you have to look at it from both angles. Here's a prime example. If you have an, an actual apartment that might be more expensive than what the mortgage, the principal cost, the insurance will be on a home, that's all fine. But think about it like this. If the peace of mind of not having to cut the grass, uh, water the grass, take care of the basement, you know, something were to happen with the plumbing and fixing it, and you get to free up your time to go out there and do things that you want to do, produce more income, build businesses, it might behoove you more to rent, even if it's slightly more expensive. Because here's the thing, something happens, you call the maintenance person, they come over, they fix it, you don't have to waste time for it. Because owning a home and buying a home is an actual process. It's a lifestyle. When it's, a, it's just a lifestyle. It has nothing to do with finances. It's just a lifestyle. You cannot compare the two. You might want to be nimble enough because you're starting your career, and instead of locking yourself down in a mortgage in the area for 30 years, you might say, hey, I might need to rent for a year because I don't know where my career might take me. I might move from the East Coast to the West Coast. Well, guys, if you have a house, that's a lot harder to do because... Number one, you probably got a lot more stuff. And then number two is you got to sell the home, get back to equity, flip it, try to pay off the bank and do a lot of things that you have going on. And unless you're in a positive bull market for the for real estate, it's extremely hard to do. Just think about how many people lost equity on their homes during the, during the uh, financial crash. And it, it happens. It repeats. It's going to happen again. It happened in the 80s. It happened in the 60s. It's, it, it happens in the 30s. It happened in the 2000s. It's all just a matter of time. It's just how capitalism itself works. So I got to troll this one, and I got to say this. It all depends on your, your financial situation. For me, me personally, I think if you're a young person, if you have a lot of things going on, you might be better off renting. And instead of buying a home, and there's nothing wrong with renting a home, give the responsibility of some, give the responsibility to debt, the taxes to somebody else. You focus on building more income, so that way you can just buy more income-producing assets, and you don't have to worry about it. Here's another one. This is really popular now. Everybody should invest in gold, silver, or crypto. So, 
there's been this big push within the last year that the dollar itself is going to be destroyed. Nobody's going to want it. It's garbage. And yes, I do agree. The dollar is not even worth the, the, the paper that it's printed on. I get it. The value of the dollar goes down every single day. And yes, I believe in alternative currencies. Yes. Okay. Let me just put that out there. But the fact that everyone should invest in gold, silver, or crypto is absolutely asinine because most people don't understand financial markets. Most people don't understand valuation. Most people don't understand appreciation and all those things that go into it. Me personally, gold, silver, and crypto is extremely volatile. Just look at what happened over the last six months. You had something go to 20K and now it's down to six or $7,000 in its value. I mean, most people can't take that that heart, that heartache that happens if they had something that was worth something and they still have it. And guess what? It dropped less than half of the value. Most people can't handle that. So they should not play in that arena. And most people, they don't understand of making the money, taking the profits of what you made. They set themselves a goal to get out. That's how wealthy people make money with regards to appreciating the assets. They say, OK, I'm going to buy for this amount. And guess what? I'm not going to be greedy. Once it gets to this particular portion, I'm going to sell it no matter what. That's called a stop limit in the in the. That's called a lot stop limit or um, sell limits that you have in the stock market. People will buy different shares of company at a certain price, and they set it up automatically to where, hey, if it doubles, guess what? I'm going to sell it no matter what. I don't care if it triples, quadruples, whatever. I'm not going to go off the hype. I'm going to take my money, what I said I was going to do on my goal, and get out of there. And they also do it the opposite way. If it goes down a particular value, I'm okay with taking this loss right now. I'm not going to wait for it. I'm going to offload it and sell it. So those are the particular things that we have to focus on as far as investors are concerned. And we can't go with the hype. To me, saying that everybody should invest in gold, silver, crypto, guess what? It's just hype out there in the marketplace. You're probably being sold some books, tapes, and trading orders or something like that. And it just doesn't necessarily work out, ladies and gentlemen. So I do not want you guys to absolutely just fall for that. Look at where you need to be. Here's another one. Man, these kind of going through these lists, I'm kind of realizing that a lot of individuals are, are, are hearing these things, and I've heard them too, but maybe because I'm in this arena, I kind of just, just don't listen to it. But these are fairly common, what people are saying, especially out there on social media. So here's what we're going to do. If you guys are listening to this, this podcast right now, take some notes. Uh, keep, you know, keep track of what it is. And if one comes to your head, you know, feel free to drop it down in the comments if you see this on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram. And then we'll keep it moving. But here's another one for you. It says you need a financial planner. Absolutely false. Number one, if your investments are not that complicated, and yes, you know about personal finance, you do not need a financial planner. And here's the ultimate test for most financial planners. If you do happen to go to a financial planner and whatever it is they're trying to tell you, whatever financial instrument they're trying to tell you to invest in, ask them if they actually invest in it and we'll see what's really going on. Whole life, in, whole life insurance is better than term life insurance because it build cash value. You guys know where I stand with that. I'm more of a term guy. Keep your money and invest it. Um, yeah, I don't have much for that. Well, but to say this, okay, number one, whole life insurance is usually 5, 10, 15, 20 times more expensive than term life insurance for the same level of coverage. And you're going to be years into the policy before you actually start building some substantial cash value. And at the end of the day, why do I need to borrow money for myself? Moving on. You, can, you can't get 10% rated return in the market, okay? Well, this is just a false narrative that's been painted to people 
And I'm going I'm to blame it on the banks, okay, because they marketed that the stock market is volatile, it's very risky, and you should not be investing in it. So I'm going to go ahead and give this one to the banks. I could be wrong, but I'm going to place the blame on there. If somebody's got something different, then that's fine. Hit me with the research, the fact checkers will come out. But here's the thing. I have a fund that I actually invested with T. Roy Price, which is, a, which is actually an um, invest, which is actually a wholesale investment firm, investment bank, what do you want to say? And one of my actual funds that I invest in on a monthly basis, every time consistently, is a fund that they had around for 1939. And over that time, from, from 1939 to now, the cumulative rate of return within that time has been something like 9.8% rate of return. And this is considered one of their moderately, you know, moderately conservative, moderately aggressive, is not really aggressive, is not really conservative, is kind of right in the middle funds. It's not even one of their more aggressive funds that have been around for decades upon decades upon decades upon decades. Listen, ladies and gentlemen. You can go out there and get 10% rate of return in the market if you know where to look for it and if you learn up on what's going on. Most stock indexes, yes, you're going to have ebbs and flows. It's going to be up, it's going to be down, it's going to be up, it's going to be down. But you have to look at the long-term investment, the long-term picture. And 10% rate of return is very common. 12% rate of return is also common. 9% rate of return is common. 8% rate of return is common. And all the, and you can have a mix of all those in between to where your portfolio gets you your 10% rate of return overall. So you have to kind of get this, this notion out of your head that you can't get something. So let me give you an example. You can have 1,000% thousand, thousand rate of return on your investment in the market. Think about if you were to buy into, say, Apple when it was 20 bucks. Yeah, I know it's a long time ago, but let's think about Facebook, something more common. What if you bought into Facebook when it was 40 bucks or 50 bucks or 60 bucks and it's over hundreds of dollars right now? What if you bought into Tesla when it was 80 bucks, 90 bucks, 100 bucks, 150 bucks, and it's worth several hundred dollars right now? What if you bought into uh, Netflix, you know, um, I bought it in Netflix when it was cheap. And guess what? It's up now. What about AMD? I bought AMD when it was like 4 or $5. And since they launched the new chipsets inside the MacBook Pros, they're up in the, double di- they're up in the, the teens right now. I mean, that's, that's you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100% rate of returns right there that you can get in the market if you know what you're particularly doing. So I tie that into this next one where people say you should use CDs to invest because it's safe. Yes, CDs are safe because they're going to pay you 0.5% or 1% to lock your money up for a year. It's the instrument by the bank that they instituted. Now, here is the thing. A CD, the bank will guarantee you a certain rate of return. But did you know they're actually going to take that money, build their business, invest their business, loan it out to make more rates of return? And honestly, sometimes even go take the money from the CDs and drop it into their actual, you know, into the marketplace and into the stock market and make money off of it, and they're just going to give you the 1%. They're going to give you the difference. So they're going to keep the 14% that they make, and they're going to give you the 1%, and then they say, well, it's all safe. You're all good to go. You got your guaranteed 1%. Your principal is safe. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's just a, that's just a false narrative, okay? If it is, if you're going to be guaranteed something, then somebody else is being guaranteed something. And that's how you have to always look at any investment. If I'm being guaranteed something, somebody else is being guaranteed something because there's no free lunch out there. You're just not getting any money for free out there. You have to be rich to invest. I love these investment ones. So this was said that you have to be rich to invest. 
Okay. The market itself has never been more accessible. Smartphone, technology, everything has been growing. I mean, you can open up accounts with $0 right now. You got Stash. You got Acorns. You got Robinhood. You can buy fractional shares. You can buy ETFs. You can spend $50 a month. You can spend $5 a month. It does not matter. You can get into the game and start investing right now. You do not have to be rich. However, I would say this and take this with a grain of salt. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but if you're micro-investing your entire financial life, then guess what? You're going to have micro-results in the future. You cannot get wealthy by, by just investing $5 every single, every single month as if you're trying to build wealth. It's not going to happen like that. If you're investing 60 bucks a, a year, 100 bucks a year, don't expect to have a million dollars later on down the line. I will say that. However, you don't necessarily have to be rich. So you can be 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollar household, but if you take in 4 or 5 grand every single year and drop it into your investment account, well guess what? You're going to have 2, 3, 400,000 dollars on average, you know, if you get an 8% rate of return, when it comes time to just shut it down and retire. You're going to be 2, 300,000 dollars to the better if you do that during your working career. So you can get it done. If you never, if you haven't heard of this book, you want to look at the Poor Rich's Retirement, you want to check that out. It talks about things that you can do. You don't have to necessarily be wealthy, but you can have a wealthy life and have paid off house, paid off cars, money in the bank, medication taken care of, all those things that you need to have on, you know, everyday living basis and take care of your lifestyle and not have to work. That's an awesome deal. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. I got like two more and then we wrapped up. So here's two that I found to be extremely funny, all right? And I got to say this one because I thought it was hilarious. I started laughing. But somebody told me they had to buy things in bulk because it's cheaper overall. All right. So here is the thing. This is a shout-out to the people that go to Sam's Club that go out and buy, you know, 50 rolls of toilet paper and it's just one person with them. Yes, I get it over time. It might be cheaper, okay? But you have what's called the actual um, opportunity cost. So if you're going to go spend 50 bucks in toilet paper just because it's cheaper overall, then guess what? What if you spend $10 and took the $40 to actually invest it? Or what if you took $10 and bought the toilet paper and spent the $40 on going out and doing something that you particularly want to do? Yes, I get it. But what most people do is they penny pinch on the, on things that's really not that important. You know, I when I talk about budget or what you can do to cut your cut your expenses and how things you can start investing more. When I sit down with a person across the table to tell them to, to kind of work through their finances, the first thing they always say is, "Well, I'm gonna stop getting my hair done, or I'm gonna stop doing my nails, or you know, maybe I can go to one haircut a month instead of you know three haircuts a month." You know, they start looking at things like that and start cutting down lifestyle. The problem is with cutting down lifestyle, nobody wants to do it. However, we start penny pinching on things that's not really a big deal. You know, we start focusing on, well, I need to buy a gallon of dishwashing liquid because if I just buy a bottle of it, it's, it's less expensive if I bought the same amount. Yes, that is true, but maybe you need to become more savvy uh, with what you're using and consuming the products. Maybe go to a cheaper brand. Maybe go to, maybe stop using so much. Maybe, maybe become more savvy with what you're doing if it's really that tight for you. However, I'm the type of person where when it comes down to consumer items, I'm buying just what I need that could make me some more money or just what I need to consume within that time frame that I want to. So that way I have cash flow on hand and I can invest. I can build my business. I can do other things. I can get on the road. I can go travel. I can do all the things that I want to do and need to do in order to produce me more income. So I get it. 
You got six kids at home. You probably need to buy the 24-pack uh, of Pop-Tarts from Sam's Club. But if it's just you, you or your wife, you or one kid, you can scale that back some and give yourself more income to actually invest because now remember what we said a little bit earlier. If you're investing on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis, you're putting money into your accounts. Guess what? You got more cash flow later on, and you're building towards a bigger picture. And here's the 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 grand one that I saved for last, Okay. This is the biggest myth out there in credit right now today. So stop listening to people because this is crazy. Carrying a balance on your credit cards is going to improve your credit score. Unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, it does not. The best way to get your credit score up is to have great payment history and low credit utilization. That, that counts for 60% of you know your credit score, okay? So Low credit utilization comes down to, you know, you don't have all your credit being tied up on debt. And payment history is, you know, paying your bill every single month. Well, guess what? The best way to get your credit score up really quickly is to utilize a low utilization, somewhere between 7% to 10% of your total credit you have available to you, and pay it off every single month uh, before the reporting agency report out. But pay it every single month, and that way do not carry a balance. Here's what happens when you carry a balance. If you carry a balance from month to month to month, you're going to get hit with finance charges, interest, and just more money that you shouldn't be spending anyway. So this idea that you need to have a balance on credit cards to improve your credit score isn't the same as, say, if you got a mortgage or auto loan. Obviously, that debt is going to be right there. But this revolving debt, you do not need to keep a balance. And matter of fact, it would be not to actually keep a running balance and just pay it off every single month. So here's a way that you can do it. Whatever you buy, if you purchase on a credit card, don't buy it unless you have the cash to pay for it. Okay, so you want to build some credit. I'm not, I'm not a particular fan on this because people can't control themselves, but um, you can go ahead and buy something on a credit card and then, you know, once it posts to the statement, you know, a couple of days later, send the money in, whoop de doo It's no big deal. You know, I get it. You're doing it. You're playing a strategy to get your credit up because you're trying to do something a lot larger, not just borrow money, but you might be trying to get your personal credit up so you can then, you know, if you got a business, you're going to business, is going to need credit, all those things that you have, it works out just fine. However, ladies and gentlemen, do not roll over a balance, especially if it's on some consumer items that you necessarily didn't need to roll a balance on anyway. It's just going to keep your credit utilization low. You're going to have better payment history, and I guarantee you, you're going to start getting hit with those credit increases that all of us actually want, right? So, I'm going to leave it at that, ladies and gentlemen. I went through the list of these are kind of the items that most people say a long time, all the time. You know, if you got something, I'll put, you know, wherever, wherever you see this, this, hear this podcast at, go ahead and drop some information down below. Of course, you can always share this with other people. You know, I'm, always, I'm kind of curious to what people are actually saying out there. What are they being told about money? Because many times I might live within this bubble because I understand this, this actual information. But sometimes, like today, I got to step outside of it and hear what's actually out in the marketplace and hear what people are actually getting for feedback. And it was kind of alarming. So that's why I want to do this episode. Take it with the greatest saw. I'm not, you know, if you've been told this information, I'm not saying that you're stupid, crazy, dumb, or anybody who told you this is a bad person or gave you bad advice. I just think, honestly, you don't know what you don't know. And I want to just kind of shed a light on it from my particular point of view, my particular um, experience inside of personal finance with regard to, with regarding to all these statements that we hear people say on a, you know, I mean, 
they're out there. You're being told this. I mean, the 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 home is your largest asset deal. I mean, come on, ladies and gentlemen. How many times have you actually heard that? So that's it for this. That's it for this episode, guys. We got another episode in the bank of the Be Great with Your Money podcast. We got a lot of stuff planned for you, ladies and gentlemen, out there. We got some interviews coming up. We got some collaborations coming up. We got some things that's going to absolutely be just a treat for you to have, and I guarantee you're going to get some knowledge, get some value to go out there and absolutely be great with your money. So my name is James E. Anderson, your host, your facilitator, and the person that wants to just help you out and be great with your money. Of course, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. It's all the same thing at I am JD Anderson. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, we just share information to give people information that we practically have here at this particular podcast of this show. Of course, we're not financial advisors or anything like that. So you can always consult your CPA, your accountant, your tax professional, your attorney, whatever it is that you have to do if you're going to be making a financial decision. We just want to give you some knowledge to go out there and be great with your money. So that's it, guys. That's all we have. James D. Anderson at I am JD Anderson. Another episode in the bag of the Be Great With Your Money podcast. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. And I will talk to you guys on the next one. Visit jda-solutions.com and click learn more for more information.